of them were still oh yes nice <laughs> half of them were still um just figuring out like is jesus someone that i truly believe in um the ones who are still struggling they would still go to church every sunday um but they're also living a very different lifestyle they were dating non-believers uh they were going to raves and um, I remember that my friend who was a believer, we were trying to convince our other friend that, Hey, like your lifestyle, it doesn't really reflect, um, what it means to be a Christian. Have you ever considered that you might not actually be saved? And, uh, my friend who's really struggling in his faith, he, he knows the truth. He believes that a God exists. He believes in a Jesus, but he just didn't feel it. And I remember he, um, he said how difficult it was to give up dating this non-believer or, going to race because it was actually really fun. He actually connected with the people um, at these concerts that he went to. And he told us, I won't forget this. He said, you know, even if I die and I'm, and I'm not a Christian and for some reason I'm falling into hell, I want to hope that as I'm falling into hell, I can reach out to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I, I know I made a mistake, but now I know that you're real. And I hope that in that moment, God will have enough mercy to save me as I'm falling into hell. And I remember looking back at that conversation and just looking to my other friend who was a believer and thinking, that's a nice thought. That would be cool if we had one last chance as we, after we die, but it never says that in scripture. I think it was my friend who just possessed this wishful thinking. And I think this idea of death, what happens after we die, it brings up the question of what happens when we die? Can someone cross over into heaven from hell? Can someone cross into hell from heaven if they somehow mess up in heaven? Does what we do in this life really matter? I think today's parable is really important because we're going to dive into the only passage in scripture which describes how a person might think, say, or feel if for some reason they end up in hell. We almost get to play the game, what if? What if someone were to end up in hell? What would that be like? What would they say or do or want to do? And maybe for you, at least this has happened for me, I've always wondered, if I could be in hell for one second, I wonder what it would be like. Sometimes I've thought that. Like, I can experience that pain for one second and just, you know, hit the eject button and go back to earth or go back to heaven. Well, we don't have to wonder because this parable shows us it displays what it might be like when somebody finds themselves not in heaven but in hell my goal today is not to preach a fire and brimstone sermon to scream at you or to scare you into accepting jesus remember that in romans 2 4 it says that it's the kindness of god that leads you to repentance so we're christians not because we're scared of hell we're christians because god loves us and our hearts melt in light of god but yet I still hope to faithfully preach this sermon because it will act as a witness. It will be a warning for those of us who maybe don't live as if hell and heaven are real. So if we can hit the next slide, I'm going to give a preview for, um, for today's sermon. Um, this is similar to when we went through the life of Joseph. There's really two parts in this today's message. One, I'm going to explain the parable. And then number two, I'm going to answer the so what. Why does this matter? What are the theological implications? And the theology just means study of God. Biology, study of life. Um, theology, study of God. Theos, it means God. 
So that is what we're going to do in the second half of today's sermon. And as we go into this parable, I want you guys to know that this parable, Jesus speaks this parable to Pharisees, to people who thought they could love God and love money. They thought they could serve two masters, but they will find that they're very wrong. So if you have your Bibles, please turn now to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. That is where we'll pick up and see this this parable, which will warn us. Luke chapter 16. We're going to meet two characters in this parable, a rich man and a poor man. So let's look at verse 19 in Luke chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 19. Let's read to verse 21. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Let's stop there. So uh, if we go to the next slide, I drew a short picture of this rich man. He's clothed in purple. If you wore purple back then, it signified uh, royalty, kingship. And we see the poor man at the door. This poor man named Lazarus, he's covered with sores. And to be clear, this is not the same Lazarus as the one who's uh, risen from the dead. This is a different Lazarus. This one's a fictional character because he's in a parable. Um, but we see this rich man that every day he feasted sumptuously every day. And you can even notice just the words. It's emphasized three times. In other translations, we see that he feasted lavishly every day. So this is a guy who goes to... Korean barbecue uh, for breakfast, lunch, dinner. Don't know why you'd go there. Uh, this is the person who goes to Disneyland every single day. They take vacations every month. They have Spotify premium. Imagine that. And they have everything you could possibly want. This rich man had everything. Now, I want you to notice what the parable doesn't say. It doesn't say that the rich man broke the commands. It didn't say that he was an adulterer or that he was a murderer. No, it just simply said he had a lot of things and he enjoyed his life every single day, but it's contrasted with the poor man who's at the door named Lazarus. Now you even have to think, how come the poor man gets a name Lazarus, but the rich man, he's never identified in this parable. We'll get to that maybe a little bit later. And Lazarus as a poor man, he was at the bottom of society and he was laid at the gates of this rich man. So it means that this rich man saw Lazarus almost every single day, but he chose not to do anything. And this poor man, Lazarus, just would be uh, desperate for even the scraps that would fall off the table, whether it was scraps of rice, the last bite of that burger, the end of carrots, things that you wouldn't eat. That's what he would be desperate to eat. And it says that even dogs would come and lick his sores. And back then, I know dog is a man's best friend. If you have a dog, you know that your dog is so precious. But back then, to a Jewish person, a dog wasn't a man's best friend. A dog was a scavenger. They were disgusting. They were uh, impure. 
So it's kind of similar how, to how we might see a homeless person going through the garbage. We don't really have a positive image in our mind when we see that. And that's kind of how dogs are seen back then. And so we see the contrast between uh, the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus. It's an evil that the man who had so much chose to do very little. In fact, nothing to care for uh, the poor man, uh, Lazarus. But soon, both the poor man, Lazarus, and the rich man, they will both die. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Every single person one day will meet death. So let's see what happens when they both die. Let's look at verses 22 to 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torments, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off in Lazarus at his side. Let's stop there. So again, we see another contrast. This man, this rich man who had everything in life, he ends up in hell in Hades. And this poor man who had virtually nothing in life ends up in heaven. This poor man, he's not even given a burial. Notice that the rich man, he's given a burial. And I was just curious this past week, I Googled what happens to homeless people when they die? Because how do they, do they get a burial? Like, do they have family? And this is modern times. This isn't back then. But what I found out on websites who I think they're credible, uh, the authorities, they try to ID this home, a homeless person and they have family. The family can take care of the fees for, um, for the funeral or burial. Um, otherwise, the state will have to cover the fee for the cremation. The worst case scenario is if a body is found after a long period of time and it's already decomposed and it's just skeleton remains. Imagine the fate of maybe a homeless person and perhaps that might've been the fate of Lazarus. He didn't have a burial. We don't hear of any family that he had. He just died and he was forgotten. And yet after his death, he enters the gates of heaven and he is carried to Abraham's side. It says that angels carried him to Abraham's side. And that might be a little unique or kind of a strange phrasing. Um, why do they say Abraham? Why, why do they say carried to Abraham's bosom, which might be in some of your translations? Uh, in, in other Jewish texts, that phrase could simply just mean that place of rest that Jews would go to after death. So in other words, heaven. Um, Abraham is identified because he was the father of Jews, the father of Israel. So um, to be at Abraham's side would be a a huge honor. So you can imagine maybe um, that a Lazarus was um, carried to heaven at the banquet and he might have been at Abraham's side. But what about this rich man? He received a proper burial. And despite the wonderful, luxurious, wealthy lifestyle he lived, he finds himself in hell. And then he lifts up his eyes in torments and he sees Abraham and Lazarus from afar. Now let's stop here. I don't want to say that people in heaven and hell can see one another the way if two people in different buildings can kind of like wave at each other and say hi. I don't want to say that's real for the sake of the parable. It's almost stretching, making the scenario, stretching the scenario so they can imagine what's happening. So what does the rich man say when he sees Abraham and Lazarus from afar? Let's read verses 24 to 26. And he, the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, 
you received your good things, and Lazarus, in his manner, bad things. But now he has comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. If we can go to the next slide, I have another short description of um, Lazarus and Abraham in the top half of the picture and uh, the rich man on the bottom. And I think if we were in the rich man's shoes, wouldn't we beg for mercy? Wouldn't we cry out to Abraham and say, have mercy on me? Wouldn't anyone beg for mercy if they were burning in the fires of hell and screaming for an escape? And so he says, Abraham, send Lazarus to have him dip his finger in water and just cool down my tongue. Anything to have any temporary relief from my misery here. And we receive a very confusing answer. Abraham, the father of Jews, he says no. He refuses to offer mercy to this rich man. He said, you had your time on earth. You had good things. You lived really well. You got your blessings in your earthly life. Yet you rejected God. And while Lazarus, he had a wretched life. He never caught a break, but he feared God. And so now while he's comforted, now you will be in anguish. Now, let me stop here. This doesn't mean that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. I don't want us to get that type of thinking in my mind, but it does reinforce something that Jesus said. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't mean blessed are the poor people. Poor in spirit are those who are humble enough to know that they need a savior. Luke 13 says, some are last who will be first. And some who are first will be last. I kind of hinted at this last week, but the problem with the rich man, it wasn't that he was rich. That's not the reason the rich man went to hell. It was that he was rich and he refused to help the poor, which reflected his disbelief in a God who cares for the poor. All right, let me repeat that again. It was the fact that he was rich and refused to help the poor, which reveals his disbelief in God who cares about the poor. And so because of that, he has not given mercy in the life to come. But other than, in addition to that, in verse 26, it talks about a great chasm. I try to illustrate that. There's this um, chasm between heaven and hell that you cannot pass. If you are in heaven, there's no way you can outsin yourself and fall into hell. If you are in hell, there's no good thing you can do to earn your way back into heaven. Once you're saved, you are always saved. Once you are in hell, you're always in hell. There is no do-overs. You don't respawn and have, get a chance to try again in life. There is only one life. Once it's over, it's over. So the rich man, he gets rejected of his first request to have relief from his uh, pain. He gets rejected, but then he asked a second thing. Let's see what he asked in verses 27 to 29. And he, the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, to send him Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torments. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let's stop there. So the rich man says, okay, you can't help me, Abraham. At least help my family. I still got five brothers on earth. If they knew what hell was like, 
they would repent right now. Can you at least send Lazarus, get him back to earth so that they can warn my brothers? Can you do that? Please, Abraham, please. And maybe you might expect Abraham to say, okay, I'll let you, I'll let that happen. But hey, Abraham says, no. He says, they have Moses and the prophets, which is to really say they have the Old Testament. They have the scriptures. They already have evidence uh, in the law and the prophets that point to God's kingdom, that point to a future King Jesus. They have every opportunity to learn about the truths of God anytime. So Abraham says, well, there we have access to God. They're just choosing not to believe it. But then the rich man, he pushes back one last time. He says, if a dead person rises from the dead and warns my brothers, that will change their heart. Let's look what Abraham says, verses 30 to 31. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He, Abraham, said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. So even now, Abraham refuses and says, hey, they have the Old Testament. They could pick up the Old Testament and read it any time they want to, but they choose to, they choose not to. And if we go to the next slide, I have a comical illustration of this. Let's say they send, did send Lazarus back um, to, to earth. What would he actually say to, um, to the five brothers? So I can't even read right my, I don't have my glasses, but it's something like um, he warns them. He says, guys, I only got minutes left before I have to go back to heaven. Jesus is for real. And they say, might say something like, oh, I already know that. We, we have the Bible. And it's almost like, oh, then what am I doing here then? Like this is me coming back from earth or coming back from heaven to earth. It's not really going to change anything. Because let's say Jesus came back to earth right now. And I think I used this illustration earlier and I said, Hey, Jesus, can you go up and preach this Friday? I don't want to preach. I mean, you're Jesus. You are the alpha and the omega. Like, what can I really say? Jesus would come up here and it would be as if Jesus just opens the Bible and reads the book of John. And you might be sitting there and thinking, wait, but we already have access to the book of John. And that's the point. A dead person who rises from the dead will not convert your hearts. How do I know this? Because it happened all the time in scripture. Because ironically, Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead, a different Lazarus, a real life Lazarus. And even when he does this, the Pharisees hate Jesus even more. They saw a dead man rise from the dead, and yet they still plot to kill Jesus. And that's proof. So if you ever wondered, if only Jesus was here right now, my friends would believe. If only they could see, if only my non-Christian friends could see a miracle they would believe. And I have to tell you, that's simply not true. Miracles do not convert a dead heart. We have every access to knowledge of salvation right there in your laps in the Bible or in your phone. You have access to salvation through the Bible. And this is how the parable ends. There is no um, happy ending for the poor man, he doesn't get to enter into heaven. This parable ends with the poor man living out the rest of his existence, not in heaven, but in hell. What a way to end a parable. 
And now as we move into explaining the theological implication, the so what, there's a lot of things that I can pack out of this parable. But I think there are three that I want us to really unpack. So if you can go to the next slide, the first one is that God's judgments on the destiny of every soul is 100% final. Heaven or hell will be your permanent home. You know how sometimes you fail tests or everyone in class fails a test and the teacher feels bad, gives you a retake. Yeah, that's not really happening when we die. And I say that because I hope it's a warning. How you live your life now will impact your eternal destiny. In video games, if you die, you respawn, you go back to the starting point. That doesn't happen after you die. You only get one life. And how you live your life matters. God will judge every soul. And in this world, the first are often first, and the last are often last. The rich, the successful, the smart, the accomplished, they're often the ones who get the most attention. They can even, let's say they're in court, they can pay off lawyers and judges to control the outcome. The last are often last. It's usually the awkward, the weird, the unpopular, the poor, and the diseased. These are the ones who are often neglected or um, ignored. But in the world to come, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. God, the perfect judge, will execute his perfect justice. So I want us to first understand that hell and heaven are real and they are forever. There are some Christians or theologians, they have tried to soften the blow on the reality of heaven. They've come up with a doctrine called annihilism, which basically states that people who don't believe in Jesus, they'll still go to hell, but there comes a point when they will cease to exist. They will be annihilated. So at least they are, um, they don't experience any more suffering. That is a false doctrine that you might hear if you um, poke around and see what other maybe liberal scholars might be uh, studying. But this parable should tell us there is no end to suffering in hell. There is no such thing as being annihilated. There's no such thing as God having mercy and saying, okay, it's been a million years. You've suffered long enough. I'm just going to wipe you off. So you don't feel anything. There's no such thing as that in the life to come. In heaven and in hell, your body's immortal. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Every person here will live forever. It's not a matter of how long you'll live. It's a matter of location. It's a, it's a matter of where you will live after you die. Every person here is eternal. Your soul will live on forever. I want you to go through a mental exercise with me. Let's say you go throughout junior high and high school and you get, hey, decent grades. Maybe the worst is an A minus, but for the most part, you get pretty decent grades. Yeah, you guys are nodding your heads like, yeah, I'd be happy if my worst grade was an A minus. I mean, I'd be happy with that. Let's say you get into a quality college, maybe not Harvard, but it's definitely a good one, like a high respectable UC um, in the system. And when it's Christmas or Thanksgiving, your relatives, your parents, they're beaming in pride, like, yeah, my, my son and daughter, they go to this school. And maybe in college, you get to study abroad, go um, learn new culture and you have a lot more experiences. Maybe in your last year of college, you um, get an internship, which sets you up for a nice paying job right off the bat after college. And you, you make good money. 
And you're surprised, wow, I'm making a lot of money. I can save for retirement and I can buy the things I want to do. And you can even go on weekends with your friends. And let's say when you have this job, you find a nice guy or girl to settle down with, then you have a family. And after that, you raise your kids and you don't really have to struggle too much with finances. Maybe you have a dog. Then you take your kids to school and college and your kids start having kids. And by that time, you're able to retire and you're like, okay, my retirement accounts, man, I've got a lot of money in here. Let's uh, take that cruise to Japan or Europe and you and your significant other, you can finally cruise in life. You can be on a, um, a little cruise and just enjoy the, um, the sun, the, the ocean, the skies, and you've left the legacy for your children and grandchildren. And you're able to die peacefully because you know what? You've accomplished the American dream. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, I want you to imagine that, that when you close your eyes on your last day and when you open your eyes again, you stand before God and he says to you, you've lived a wonderful life, but you lived a life apart from me. You rejected the gospel. You heard the gospel being preached at Unicoi from your parents, from your small group leader, your Sunday school teacher. You know that I sent my son Jesus to die for your sins. And you know that my son is the only way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to me to heaven except through my son Jesus. And because you rejected Jesus on earth, I'm only giving you what you want in the afterlife, which is an existence apart from, from me. Imagine if you've heard that. And imagine if you're being ushered after that into an eternal torment of hell. You've just lived a wonderful life on earth, but now you've just waltzed your way into hell and you didn't even know it. Why? Because the American dream has blinded you. It's told you that you just have a great job, a great family, and make your parents proud, then you're good in life. All the while, Satan has blinded you. Now, I want us to know that God is not a mean kid with a magnifying glass on an anthill trying to kill and watch people suffer. We know that in 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. So I don't want you to see God as an angry God who loses control and just wants to see people suffer. He wants everyone to come to knowledge of our truth, of saving truth. So this brings us to point number two, that God has provided sufficient evidence through the scriptures to call sinners to repentance, invite them to join his kingdom. God is not a God, is not a God who is playing hide and seek. He's not trying to hide behind a tree and say, hey, guess how you can get into heaven. No, God has made it crystal clear. You want to be with me forever? I've given it. I've given the answers in the Bible. You just have to read it. You just have to read it. God is not trying to hide from any of you. He's trying to make himself known. The question is, are you trying to hide from God? Are you trying to run away from God? Are you trying to push God away? That is the real question. God is right here, right now, revealing himself to you through his word. And the question is, are we paying attention? In this parable, we saw that the rich man he tells Abraham, just send Lazarus back. They just need to see a miracle and my brothers will be saved. But Abraham says, no, they already have the Bible. They already have the scriptures. And 
I wanted to see three things about uh, what the Bible is like. I was reading an article from the Gospel Coalition, which is a great website. Um, this article shared eight things about the Bible. I only want to share three. Uh, if we go to the first subpoint, we see that the Bible is inspired. Or the Bible is inspired. When you read the Bible, it's different from reading a science textbook. Why? Because your science textbook, it will have many truths in there that they observe in God's created world. But your science textbook and your history book, it was written by ordinary men using their own knowledge and research and records from before. The Bible, now it was written by ordinary men, but 2 Timothy 3.16 said that all scripture is inspired, which means that God did not mind control men to write the Bible, but God influenced and inspired and used the personality of authors to write and record the Bible. So if you read the Bible, you'll notice that every book of the Bible has a different flavor because it's the personality of the author. And God wanted them to write everything you see on scripture. It's what God wanted to be written. And so when you read the Bible, you're hearing from God himself. If we can go to the second sub point, we see that the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is enough. It is sufficient. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, um, Scripture, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which is Scripture, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Think about how incredible this is. Imagine you're an airplane and you fly over an island and you have a Bible and you just toss it over this island to a people that has never heard the gospel. If someone from that tribe on that island picks up the Bible they have access to eternal life. And that whole um, population on that island can be saved. Isn't that incredible that the Bible is sufficient for salvation? That's a special book. And for you, when you read the Bible, it makes you knowledgeable for salvation. In the movies, you see um, uh, movies about finding treasure. They have a treasure map. The main characters and the enemies are all trying to fight for that treasure map because it leads to um, the treasure at the end of the movie. The Bible is that treasure map. The Bible reveals what it means to be with the Lord forever. And yet for so many of us, the Bible is collecting dust in our rooms that we are quicker to open our homework, our calendar, our math book than we are to opening the words of life. The Bible itself. Why is that? What does that reveal about what you prioritize in your life? Lastly, the last sub point is that the Bible is powerful. The Bible, if you compare the Bible to a sword or a knife, it's not a dull knife. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. It's alive and active and it penetrates and cuts to your heart. So when you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit uses it to shapen your heart. If you allow it to. This past week I was reading, I was um, going through the book of Proverbs, my personal Bible reading. And for me, I know that if I read a chapter, I can't understand every single verse. But for me, I just try to focus. If I can take away one thing from my Bible reading, that's more than enough. If my Bible reading with God can impact me in one single way, 
that's enough for me. So actually, when I read the Bible, I'm not trying to understand every single aspect of it every day. I'm just trying to think about one thing. And when you keep it simple, God can actually change your life through that. Lastly, this parable confronts you and I with a question. How are you living your life? So we go to the final point. Your way of life reveals the condition of your heart. In this parable, the rich man's actions on earth, living every day, feasting, it showed that he didn't really love God because he didn't love God's people. If you love God, you'll love God's people. You'll love other people. And this poor man, he was miserable. And the parable never says outright, but it's implied that he was one who feared God. It is better to be a poor and miserable Christian than it is to be a wealthy, blessed atheist or non-Christian. Your way of life reveals the condition of your heart. And I want you to think about your life right now. If I were to ask you on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your life? Would it be a nine or a 10? Or would it be a one or a two? This parable also shows us that just because you're having a good life now, that doesn't mean that God is blessing you. That doesn't mean that you're walking closely with God. On the reverse, just because your life is maybe a one out of 10 or a zero out of 10 or a negative a thousand, that doesn't mean God is punishing you. That doesn't mean that God is trying to ruin your life. Your way of life reveals the condition of your heart. And so I want you to think about what you value in your life, because this parable asks us the question, have you truly repented? Have you truly turned the other way? If I were to ask your friends, or if your counselors were to ask your friends, does this person live like a Christian? What would they say? If I asked your family and friends, what would they say? Let me take you on another mental exercise, all right? Let's imagine that you go throughout junior high and high school, and you really try to make church a priority. You try to show up on Fridays. You try to show up on Sundays. But because of that, you have less time to study. You have less time for extracurriculars. And because of that, uh, your GPA suffers. Because of that, that impacts your college chances. chances. And maybe you don't get into Harvard or you don't get into um, the UC or college of your choice. You probably go to your second, third, or fourth college. And maybe in college, you experience a lot of um, ridicule. You experience a lot of um, people treating you differently because you stand for God's truth on matters like abortion, matters like the LGBTQ agenda. When you stand for things like that and when you refuse to partake in the world, if they invite you for a drink, invite you to smoke weed, you'll be seen as the weird Christian guy or girl. And in college, when you, or when you have a job, when you refuse to cut corners, when you refuse to gossip about, about your coworkers, they'll see you as that goody two-shoes. They'll see you as someone who is, who is weird. And if you grow up and you have friends who are married but are sleeping around and having affairs, but you choose to be faithful to your spouse, you'll be seen as a prude. You'll be seen as someone who doesn't know how to have fun. And if you have kids in the future and you sacrifice Friday nights and Sunday mornings while your other friends might be going to Disneyland on a Sunday morning or sleeping in, which feels nice, you might be seen as different. And even though you might experience suffering in this life, you'll also experience joy, the joy of knowing God himself. 
And when you die and you live your last and you breathe your last breath and you, when you open your eyes again and stand before God as judge, he will also be a judge, but you know what? He will also be a redeemer. You'll see God, not just as judge, but as redeemer, as your savior. And you'll hear the words, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. And in that moment, you'll know that every ounce of suffering, every ounce of persecution, every ounce of ridicule, everything you lost or missed out on because of the name of Christ, it all fades into the background as you enter heaven and you're with God forever. In that moment, you'll know the party's just getting started and I'm here for all time. So as I end that, what are you waiting for? Can I ask you right now in your heart, have you truly repented? Have you truly given your life to Jesus? If you're not sure, or if you haven't, I first want to say I and your counselors are incredibly glad you're here. But I also want you to know tomorrow's not guaranteed. We might think it is, but James says that tomorrow is not guaranteed. Who knows if Jesus comes back tonight? Who knows if we die in a car accident on the way home because of, of a drunk driver or something like that? If you haven't repented, my question is, why not today? Do you truly think none of this stuff is real? And that's okay. And if you do, like, I'd love to have a conversation with you. Uh, I won't shut you down. I, I do want to hear from you, but... If you do believe this is true, why aren't you getting your life on track? Why are you not desperate to get right with God? Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And if you're right there sitting there right now and you're thinking, Kevin, I'm convinced. I think heaven is real. I know, I know hell is real. What do I have to do to be saved? You know what God would say to you? Nothing. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's no amount of good works you can do to make yourself good. The other religions in the world, they say that you have to be a good person. If you um, do this and do that, and if the good outweighs the bad, then, then you're pretty good. No, the Bible's pretty clear. Everyone's bad. <laughs> Everyone is going to hell. But that there's the offer of salvation. As long as you simply recognize that you can do nothing, but that it's Jesus who can save you because he died on the cross for your sins and you trust in him and you commit your life to living each day for him. That's it. There is nothing you can bring to the table. It's simply trusting in God. And each day is living life with him, trying to trust him more and more each day. So again, I want to ask you, have you repented of your sins? Have you turned to Jesus? If you walk out this room and you say, you know what? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think this Christianity thing is for me. Then we have no excuse because you are given every opportunity. And that is my warning and witness to you. Again, I'm not trying to scare you. It's pretty scary in and of itself. But I am just a desperate person begging you to recognize that after this life, there's only two places we go. Or either with God or apart from God. 
my big idea for today, if we go to the next slide, um, next slide, <laughs> thank you, is this. Live each day with the knowledge that number one, the narrow path to heaven is possible because God is gracious to forgive and redeem sinners. But also number two, the wide path to hell is possible. In fact, more likely and easier because God is just and he has to punish unrepentant sinners. If you can't wrap your head around the idea of a hell, I want us to consider if hell did not exist, what kind of God would we have who looks at things like a murder, who looks at things like assaults, rape, terrorism, and says, you know what? I'll let that slide. Eh, just don't do it again. If we have a God who doesn't punish evil, that would not be a God worth worshiping. But hell is evidence that God takes sin seriously. And the bottom line is every one of us here is sentenced and judged as a sinner. Apart from God, we would be lost. I want to end by reading a final passage. If you can go to the next slide um, and hit this, um, the verse. This is found in Jeremiah. I'm going to read this and then I'm going to close this in prayer. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, referring to God, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. My prayer for you is that no matter how much wealth, um, no matter how many riches you accumulate in this life, your boast would be that you know God and that he knows you. Let me pray for us. God, I pray for every single soul in this room. Every single soul will live forever, either with you or apart from you. And God, I beg that you will change the hearts of those who reject you right now. I pray that they would see you as someone who loves us, someone who loves us so much that you sent your son to die for us while we are still sinners, that no one here is outside the grasp of your love. I pray, God, that you would melt our hearts of stone. And for those of us here, God, who uh, we do believe that you are Lord and Savior, and we have surrendered our lives for you. I pray that you continue to strengthen them in the Holy Spirit because we will experience suffering in this life. We will experience persecution. I pray, God, that you'll sustain us to the end. God, may you be with us in small groups as we, as we talk about real, the realities of heaven and hell, but that you offer a way out. Thank you, Lord, for the grace of revealing salvation through the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, thank you, guys. Uh, we're going to now split off to small groups. So find your counselor, and they will lead you into...